Well, good morning. I want to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and it's our privilege and pleasure to have you with us uh, this morning. So as we get started into our teaching time, I want to ask you a question that'll require you to think quite far back in the reaches of your memory, and that is this. Do you remember the first brush that you had with injustice? Do you remember the first time that something occurred to you where you said, wait a minute, that doesn't quite seem right to me. Something's not fair about this. Uh, I'm the firstborn in our family, so it took me a lot longer to realize that the world was not just because the firstborns often, you know, are the ones that kind of get everything that they want, and sometimes they don't realize that the world is not fair. But I can remember as a kid thinking to myself, wait a minute, adults get to do things that kids don't get to do. How is that fair? They get to do things like drive. Why don't I get to drive? They, they get to do things like they have these little plastic cards that they pull out of purses and wallets and they use them and then people just at the store give them stuff. Why don't I have one of those cards? I want one. I thought this was deeply unfair. This was, maybe these things were a conspiracy that adults perpetuated in the world to keep kids in the dark about how the world really worked. Maybe there was a systemic injustice happening in this. I love the way uh, Calvin and Hobbes gives voice to this feeling in his little cartoon. He says, why can't I stay up late? You guys can. It's not fair, he says, to which his dad gives the most dad-like of all dad answers, the world isn't fair, Calvin. And Calvin says, I know, but why isn't it ever unfair in my favor? <laughs> why isn't the world ever unfair in my favor? Like the scales get tipped toward me somehow. It's a great question. And the longer that you're alive, the more chances you have against brushing up against the topic and the feeling of injustice in our world. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his book, Reversed Thunder, states that emphatically, we all experience this notion that the world is not a just place. Hurt people want relief. The bullied want fairness. The pushed around want dignity. And this desire for justice just develops and develops in our lives and in our world because our frustrations with the world deepen. And the frustration of delay when we don't get justice or when we see something unfair that happens and justice is not immediately done, our frustration about delay deepens. The world is not a good place for justice. And we learn this early on. Kids have this innate sense of injustice and we ignorantly but accurately cry out, it's not fair. Nobody gets what they deserve, whether either on reward or on punishment, because the world is just not a great place for justice. Injustice lurks everywhere, and not just personal injustices that we feel or experience, 
but there's also complex and systemic injustice, whether it's economic or social or racial or religious or political or environmental or other aspects of injustice that you could name, will be reminded, and the city of Abbotsford will be reminded this afternoon, that police officers get up, they go to work, they serve, they protect, and some of them don't come home that evening. That's not just, it's not fair. Around the world and in our own city, people experience discrimination simply because they were born in a different country like Guatemala and the economic deck is stacked against them. People experience discrimination because of their skin color or their sexual orientation or whether or not they have a roof over their heads or whether or not they have First Nations ancestry. And if we pause to think about it for too long, we begin to wonder, there's just so many injustices in the world and so many areas of injustice, like will, will the wrongs ever actually be set right? And for some time now in the pages of the book of the Bible that we're studying this fall uh, here at Jericho in the book of Revelation, this sense of injustice has been building and layering and mounting. And along with it, we have this sense in this picture that God is acting and is going to act and one of the things that God is going to do is He's going to set everything right. We begin to hear about it uh, first back in chapter 6, when the angels begin to break open the seals with this picture of conflict and judgment beginning to be poured out against those who actively resist the way of Jesus. And the fifth seal opens, and we read in Revelation 6, the souls of those under the altar cry out and say, How long, O Lord, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people of this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? They cry out for justice. Those who have been hurt naturally cry out and say, we want it, we need it, we deserve or desire justice. And they're told in Revelation 6 that justice is coming, but it's not here yet. We hear it again when we get to the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, which is another echo of the seals being broken, another picture for us. The elders around the throne of God now cry out and say, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, for you have assumed your great power and begun to reign. And in Revelation 11:18, they say, the nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge. It's time to reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy those who have created or caused destruction on the earth. And so the Apostle John, he's writing to these first century readers, the people who are part of his seven congregations in modern-day Turkey, and they've been asking the same questions to John. John's their pastor. And they're saying, John... We need to know when things are going to get put right. When will God come and, and fix all of the things that are unjust 
that are going on in the world. Because you might remember in the first century world, for them, they lived under Roman occupation. And just for being a part of the church, they were marginalized. They were not part of the majority culture. And so if they said, I worship Jesus, and therefore I cannot participate and bow down to the political uh, empire of their day, just like the Apostle John said, no, I can't do that. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Then they ran the risk of being kicked out of their culture. Uh, if they had a business, they were largely told by others, hey, we're not going to do business with you, uh, so forget it. You're done here. Um, if many early Christians, if they refused to participate in the worship of Caesar, they were like, all right, that's a criminal offense. You're getting thrown in jail. Some of them, like John, were exiled to the prison island of Patmos. And some of them, we know from history, were killed. Large numbers of them were killed in places like the Roman Colosseum for their faith, strictly because they said, I worship Jesus. And so any one of them that had experienced this unjust treatment were crying out and saying, John, how long do we have to put up with this? Who's going to put a stop to this persecution? Like, is God going to do anything about this? And so we come to our text for today, which is Revelation chapter 15 and chapter 16. And the question of justice is put forward again, and it's put forward for one final time in the book of Revelation. Seven angels are depicted as holding seven bowls, and they pour them out onto the earth. And John tells us that God's just judgment is enacted. And when this occurs, the cries of those early church martyrs, the cries of the persecuted church down through the centuries and around the globe today, the cries in our own experience and lives where things are not right, we begin to see in this text that finally these cries have been heard and they will be answered. It just may not be on the time frame that you and I imagine or expect, but God's justice will be served. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 16. I'm going to read uh, both of those chapters through today, so follow along on your device or in your Bible. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, starting in uh, 15 verse 1. <clears throat> John says, and then I saw in heaven, remember he's getting a vision uh, of this, I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, hearkening back even to the plagues from the Old Testament in Egypt, which will bring God's wrath to completion. So remember, uh, in, in the um, first set of the seals, we have a, a quarter of everything being poured out. In the trumpets, we have a fourth or a third, rather. And then we get to another sense where John hears seven peals of thunders and he's told to seal those up. Don't tell anybody about those. We don't know. Is that a half or whatever? But we're escalating. And now here we get to 15 where it says, this is it. These are the final element of God's judgment. It will bring it to completion. 
So I, John says, I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea, and it was mixed with fire. And on it stood all of the people who had been victorious over the beast, which Pastor Mike talked about last week, his statue, and the number representing his name, the number of incompleteness, the number of humanity raising itself up against God in defiance. They were all holding harps that God had given them. They were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And these songs that they sing here are just complete Old Testament quotations taken from all through the Old Testament. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you? Who will not glorify your name? You alone are holy. All of the nations of the world will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. And then John says, I saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, that place of meeting with God, the holy place, was thrown wide open. And the seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out from the temple, and they were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chests. It's the same picture that we were given of Jesus. The one of the four living beasts handled each, handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could even enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out their seven plagues. And then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go, go your way and pour out on the earth the seven bowls that contain God's wrath. So the first angel left the temple, poured out his bowl on the earth, and horrible malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the statue. And Pastor Mike talked to us about that last weekend. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. Everything in the sea died. So again, we see the seals and the trumpets also touch the sea, but this is the escalation of it again. I heard the angel, verse uh, 4 of chapter 16, poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all the waters saying, you are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments, and it's like um, a recompense. He says, since they have shed the blood of people, your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It's their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, yes, Lord the Almighty, your judgments are just and true. And so while the angels are doing their work, we have this worship service happening that we've seen pictured already in the book of Revelation. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it caused a scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone was burned by the blast of heat, and they cursed the nation name of God who had control over all of these plagues, they did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. We saw the same thing happening earlier in Revelation. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the beast's kingdom was plagued and plunged into darkness, references, again, echoes from Exodus. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish. They cursed the God of heaven in their anguish, and they cursed Him for their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their deeds and turn to God. 
Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates River and dried it up so that the kings from the east could march their armies toward the west without hindrance. The uh, Rome of that day was uh, terrified that there would be armies amassing from the east and cross the river and come and take over, which eventually did happen in history. It dried up, and I saw three evil spirits, and they looked like frogs, leap from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophets, again from last week. These were demonic spirits who worked miracles, counterfeit miracles. They went out into all the rulers of the world, and they gathered them from army. Uh, They gathered for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day against the Lord Almighty. Verse 15, Jesus breaks into the conversation and says, Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready. They will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Verse 16, the demonic spirits gathered all of the rulers and their armies to the place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne saying, it is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled, lightning flashed, a great earthquake struck, the worst since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon split into three sections, and many cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins and made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island disappeared, all the mountains were leveled, and there was a terrible hailstorm, and hails weighing 75 pounds fell from the sky onto people below, and they cursed God because of the terrible plague of hailstorm. Bizarre sequence of events. And one of the most tragic and one of the most sobering pictures in the whole of the book of Revelation, and maybe in the whole Bible. We have to remind ourselves again, when we look at a text like this, that we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, and it's so foreign to us, because we think of things even in terms of uh, metaphors and similes and all of those things, but there's not literal scrolls Uh, on literal seals on a scroll of history being burst open or literal trumpets being blown by angels or, or physical or literal bowls of stuff that angels are somehow pouring out around the globe in this sequence. This is symbolic imagery. It's almost like a performance art. It's not to be understood as like a real-time chronological sequence of events that's going one after the other after the other. In fact, we need to remind ourselves again of the fact that the bowls is this third sequence of seven in the middle of Revelation. So it's most likely describing the same series or sequence or style or kinds of events that have been described already to us, but from different perspectives. So the seven seals, we're experiencing the unfolding of history from the perspective of the church. In the seven trumpets, we're experiencing the unfolding of history through the perspective, from the perspective of the world. How is the world experiencing it? And now here, the seven bowls, we're seeing the unfolding of history the consummation of history, in fact, of justice, final justice being done, given to us from the perspective of heaven's throne room. But it's the contents of the bowls, 
that we need to think clearly about because the text is clear that the bowls contain God's wrath and that the pouring out of these bowls results paradoxically in God being worshipped and praised. And so, we have to wrestle with this tension that we're immediately presented with, like what is God's wrath and why in the world is it being poured out and how is it being poured out? For what reason is it being poured out? And what, what do we do with this text? So, before we get to the there, we have to say and wade through a whole bunch of stuff that God's wrath is not. One of the things that we cannot do with God's wrath is simply dismiss it and simplistically say, well, God is a God of love, so this wrath business just does not square with who God is. Or somehow we're dealing with two separate gods here. Uh, one God who somehow puts on his really I'm mad at you hat, takes that off, and then puts on a I really love you and care for you hat. So God's wrath is not about God being unloving in some way. God's movement to judge all that is evil is an act of His love. And so we have to wrestle with this. And we have to wrestle with this outside of the context of the book of Revelation and this text as well, because God's wrath is a topic that comes up throughout the New Testament. The bowls are not the first time that we've come across this phrase or this idea. This is not just a revelation thing, this notion that somehow God is, is just waiting, and at some point in history, He just is like, I have had enough with you people. I'm going to get really angry with you now. So, it's not just a revelation thing. What is God's wrath? So, if we trace it through the New Testament, we see that, for example, in the book of Romans, we're reminded that a day is coming, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, and He will judge everyone, the text says, according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after glory and honor and immortality that God offers, but He will pour out His wrath on those who live for themselves and who refuse to obey the truth and who instead live lives of wickedness. First and Second Thessalonians then talk more about God's wrath, and they talk about the fact that we uh, are delivered from God's wrath because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And this is another thing that we have to get carefully straight in our minds, because oftentimes, when you think about and hear about the cross, that um, the notion that God is just really upset somehow or mad or angry, and so He decides that at the cross, this is where He's going to show His anger. But when you trace the theme of God's wrath through the New Testament, it's not connected to the cross. This is a penultimate event that uh, throughout the New Testament, the writers keep telling us God's wrath is, is yet to come. It is yet 
to be poured out. Judgment has begun against sin and evil, but it's not yet consummated or completed. So the passages on God's wrath in the New Testament are not to be dragged backwards into a discussion of the penal substitutionary atonement or somehow God getting really angry and punishing His Son Jesus on the cross. Revelation even gives us this picture of the cross that the Lamb wins by the power of sacrificial love in overcoming violence, not by using or employing violence for God's purposes. And so God's wrath is not about the cross. It's also not about the Old Testament because the challenges that we have is that if we're reading through the Old Testament, we can develop ideas that maybe God just was really, really angry in the Old Testament, and, and maybe He just sort of got to a place of being finished with that, or He sort of grew up in His thinking and wondered, you know, maybe I shouldn't be that upset with humanity. I'll try being nice to them. And so then Jesus comes along and ushers in some kind of completely new uh, God. So God's wrath isn't about the Old Testament and the challenges that we get there of a capricious or angry God. But unfortunately, Revelation sometimes gets used to add fuel to those theological fires. But John here is describing something totally different. And so we got to set that aside, and this isn't a sermon about that, so we'll have to park that thought for a minute. Uh, but what we have when we think about wrath in New Testament terms and in Revelation in particular is a, is a definition or category problem. Because when I think of the term wrath, my immediate thought is anger. And I have, a, I have a very tough time, in fact, for me, it's impossible to separate those two notions. Because, like, I read through things like Greek mythology, and what happens in Greek mythology? The gods kind of tolerate humanity for a little while, and then the humans do something that actually really angers them. And what do they immediately do? They get angry, and then Zeus throws lightning bolts or whatever. So, you know, I get this picture in my mind of wrath, divine wrath as being just somehow God getting really angry or having an emotive or sometimes irrational or reflexive reaction to something bad that's happened or someone who's done something bad. And so sometimes we get this idea in our mind that God is just really upset and He's just waiting around until you or I do something that just demonstrates what he already knew to be true, that you were just deserving of a lightning bolt, and then he was going to just come and zap you in some way because he was really angry with you to start with, and you just proved his point. But it's important to remember when we come to this discussion in the book of Revelation that we have to set all of these things aside and think about and rework our definition or our understanding of what's happening here. Because Almighty God is being worshipped and honored because He is just and because He is holy. He doesn't make mistakes. 
He is righteous in all of his ways and in the ways in which he works those out. And so, it's important to think about the fact that when we experience injustice in any way, shape, or form, our immediate reflexive response is anger. Well, someone should do something about that. I'm upset. I have, I, we have a visceral, emotive response to injustice. But God never has that. When God is moved to justice, He doesn't experience anger or emotion. When God is moved for injustice for the, those who are oppressed and those who are wronged, he's experiencing something categorically different than we as humans have ever experienced. He's experiencing an untainted experience of divine wrath. So what is divine wrath then? If it's not connected to human emotion or outbursts or God being upset, how should we understand it? I like the way that Australian theologian Leon Morris puts it this way. When we think about God's wrath, the wrath of God is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. And this arises out of His very nature. It's a burning zeal for that which is right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. It's a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. And this is pre-settled for him. This is just how God operates. So, it doesn't occur to him reflexively as something happens that is evil, I should be upset about this. It's a settled disposition, a considered predisposition that God perfectly hates evil. It's not connected to emotion for him. So the wrath of sacrificial love is not a display of emotional vengeance. It's actually a display of perfected love. Because we see in our passage today that God's wrath is not just sort of poured out indiscriminately in the world, and whoops, I hit someone over there, and ah, yikes, those people really got it. Look at Revelation 16, verse 2. Who experiences the pouring out of divine judgment? It's those who worship the statue of the beast. It's those who have been marked, who have allowed the beast's mark, which Pastor Mike talked about. They've made a conscious, willful commitment to give God the middle finger, as it were. And so the pouring out of God's wrath, the pouring out of these bowls is the natural end or consequence of willfully standing in opposition to God and violating His moral law. That's why the language of the temple is used here. The, an the angels are coming out from the temple. And remember in the Old Testament, the temple is the place where, amongst other things, God's law was kept and protected. It's the, where the stone tablets, uh, where God wrote uh, for Moses on the mountain, were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. The scrolls of instruction for how to live as God's people all through the Old Testament were kept and secured in the temple. 
And so here again, we're reminded that those bowls are poured out on those, look at chapter 16, verse 11, who have cursed God in heaven, and they have not repented of their evil deeds or turned to Him. They have knowingly, continually, and willfully violated God's laws, His decrees, and His rules. And so all of God's judgment, all of God's wrath is ultimately aimed at the evil beast and those who are, have chosen to, uh, to get into bed with the beast and those who have allowed their souls to be marked and tainted with this anti-God and pro-evil kind of disposition in their souls. And so I think it's helpful again for us to pause here and remind ourselves of the question of why. Why are these people experiencing God's wrath? The pouring out of these bowls in a penultimate sense, this is the end of history, is the outworking of the natural consequences for violating God's moral law. That's why the temple language, because God is holy. He's perfect. He had a plan for the universe that, that he had in his mind before history began, and it's been tainted. It's been willingly tainted. This is not people waking up one morning and violating an arbitrary sense of rules and God going, that's it, I've had it with you people. This isn't people sort of thinking to themselves, okay, well, this is an impossible moral code and, and somehow I have violated something that I didn't know I shouldn't violate. This is an intentional breaking of relationship. I like the way that old-time preacher E. Stanley Jones says this in helping us understand God's law. He says, God's law is not an imposition on us, but it's an exposition. It's not an imposition from externally, but it is an exposition. In other words, what he's saying is God's laws are not this arbitrary, out there sense of rules that God just slapped on humankind and said, you better keep these or else I will smite you. God's laws and His rules actually expose the world and the universe for what it was truly created to be. They lay out if everything was to operate with the orientation to shalom, wholeness, peace, human flourishing, what would that look like? How would people act if that was true? And so therefore, when we violate God's laws and rules, we're actually violating reality. We are going against the very fabric and fiber of what God created us and our world to be. And so if we do that, we break relationship with God and we end up dragging ourselves and others into ruinous places. And so God's laws are not just sort of this outside set of like, you better figure these out and if you break any of these things, you guys are in real trouble. It's like God has said to us, I've, I've set the universe on its foundations. I have a way that I want you to operate towards each other, towards creation, towards all that is. Please follow those things. They will give you the most life. They will result in human flourishing. And that's why sin presents such a problem to us. Because sin is a distortion 
of who we are and who we were created to be. Let me give you an example. If I choose knowingly not to tell the truth, if I just flat out lie, God is not upset with me because I broke some kind of arbitrary rule. God is, God is grieved because He is truth. He wants truth done and spoken in relationships and in His world. And when I chose not to embrace that, when I in fact actively walked in the opposite direction from that, God was grieved and we broke relationship of the way that the world was supposed to be. That's why sin presents a problem. When a man abuses social or situational power and has an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone, God isn't upset because society thinks that's a bad idea. God is upset because He designed relationships for mutuality and respect and genuine love, and He intended that men and women show that to each other, and this person has abused it. And we've seen that played out so tragically in our culture in this season. That's why God is upset, because that sense of respect has been violated, and people have been wounded, some irreparably and damaged as a result of that. This is what sin is all about, a violation of the way in which God designed the world to work. When a gay man has sex with another man, God isn't somehow upset because the parts aren't going in the right places. He's grieved because he has an intention and a design for us as sexual human beings to be fulfilled within a covenantal relationship of marriage, which was his idea. And so when we sin, we're just saying to God, I don't think you know how the world should work. I think I know how the world should work. I think I or we have better ideas. And so when we sin, we're choosing not to reflect God's heart and His character. And if I choose this, and I choose it, and I choose it, and I choose it again, and again, and again, and again, the Bible says, eventually God will say, all right, if that's what you want, then you can have it. You can live with the consequences of that decision. If you choose to willfully live with such opposition to how I've created the universe to be, I will let that occur. And so this is what the Scripture is driving at when it talks about judgment. So there are a few things that we need to kind of make of all of this. What are we to do with all of this? Let me suggest just three simple things that we should take away from Revelation chapter 15 and 16. And the first thing that we should take away is the picture that judgment is just, it's a horrible, horrible thing to fall under. This is really the main point that John spends the better part of half of the book of Revelation driving at in as many ways as he can get our minds around it with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. He just continues to say, you really, 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 really do not want to continue to live in such a way that creates conditions where you will be subject to God's wrath. But this is also the great news 
of the gospel that's presented to us in Revelation, and that is that we can also choose not to experience judgment. You can make a decision and say, I choose Jesus, and then the New Testament is so clear that that delivers you from the wrath of God and places you into a different category of God's people. And so the action point is whenever judgment is portrayed, is it were to be reminded yet again to choose repentance and faith. Those who are standing before God in revelation in robes of white purity are not doing so based on their own actions because they were able somehow to keep God's perfect moral law, but they are there because they trust in Jesus and what He did for you and for me, that He gave Himself up. And so, friends, my deepest desire for you pastorally, for people in our city and in our neighborhood, the re one of the reasons why we send teams to Guatemala, one of the reasons why we go to Tanzania, one of the reasons why we do the work that we do as a church is that we firmly believe that it, it, we want to see as many people delivered from that experience as possible and pointed to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And we want people to embrace that and declare and believe it. Another thing that we see that gets even clearer for us in these two chapters is the judgment and those that fall under judgment that is justified and it is deserved. So God is not arbitrary or capricious here. God is not just saying oh, a little bit of judgment for them, you know, and this can be helpful for us to think about if it's, if it's justified and it's deserved and God is going to act in a way that is just and fair, this can help us resolve some of the, the questions that sometimes swirl in our minds about, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? What about those who lived before Jesus and they didn't have a chance to know about the cross or any? God's judgment is always and only meted out when it is deserved and justified. The people that experience God's wrath are not there because of an arbitrary accident of birth, geography, or chronology. Just like God is worthy, those who are under the wrath of God are also worthy. They're worthy to experience it because they have chosen it by their actions. And theologian J.I. Packer says it quite pointedly. He says, no one stands under the wrath of God except or save those who have chosen to do so. Only by willfully putting myself in that place of experiencing God's wrath is it justified or deserved? And the third thing that comes to us in this text again, and that John's trying to help us so clearly understand, is that this only happens after extended time for repentance. John's trying to communicate again here for us. This has not yet happened. The final stroke and pen of history has not yet been written. It's not finished yet. And so there is still time. And so ultimately, if we do not choose to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, God will turn us over to the consequences of our sin. And that's what John is trying to help us avoid in this text. But he's saying to us again, God is giving you time. He's giving you a, an opportunity to again to, if you are living outside of his protection and relationship with him, to come underneath that. And this is what's going on again with the bowls of the sixth and the seventh angels. 
we see in this passage these demonic and evil powers and principalities and spirits that use counterfeit miracles to convince the powers and the peoples of the world that God and His ways and His people need to be resisted. And so they begin to gather and amass at this place, this, this or a seeming place, uh, this uh, in the Hebrew, the name Armageddon, or in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. So, this is a common question that comes up in Revelation. What are we to make of this kind of uh, apocalyptic kind of notion of Armageddon? And for me, when I was growing up, I had this picture firmly fixed in my mind, because it comes to us in the next book in Revelation, of Jesus sitting on His white horse, and He had these angels with Him, and He was going to go up against all the tanks, and like the helicopters, and the bad guys, and the armies, and it was going to be this like giant showdown. And I kept thinking to myself, I mean, I know that the Bible talks about Jesus having all power and authority, but how is a guy on a white horse with one sword and these angels going to take out like all of the armies of the world, it seems a little bit, you know, weird or counterbalanced to me in some ways. Because I had this fixed in my mind as this physical, literal battle between the armies of the world and Jesus on His white horse. And they were all gathered in this one place, and this place was called Armageddon, and people could point to it on a map and say, there it is! Except there's just one problem with that. There is actually no place on any map called Armageddon. There is a place 60 miles north of Jerusalem called Har Megiddo, but it's actually, and Har means mountain, so the mountain of Megiddo. So there is no mountain of Megiddo. If you go to Megiddo even today, when you look out and stand on it, it's a flat, flat plain. It's an agricultural area in the northern section of Israel. And so, it's weird, though, because we flip these switches in our minds and we think, yeah, yeah, Armageddon must be a literal place. Nothing that John has talked about yet in 15 and 16 is a literal experience. There's not a literal bowl with literal wrath being poured out on it. But somehow then we get to Armageddon and we're like, yeah, there must be a place. No. John helps us to understand that just like so many other things in the book of Revelation, this is symbolic. This is not literal. Lots of biblical battles were fought in Megiddo. Most notably, and this is probably what John has in mind, in 2 Kings 23, we have the king of Egypt, Necho, who comes up and defeats, absolutely defeats, crushes the king of Judah, Josiah. And it, it's because Josiah actually takes himself out from underneath God's protection, and he's told, don't do it. This is a bad battle. God will not stand with you in this one. And he's like, nah, forget it. We can win. We'll be okay. I've hired some extra armies. And he goes out, and he's defeated. And ultimately, what happens is Judah is taken away in captivity to Babylon as a result of his choice. And so likely what John is doing here is setting up for his readers and for us a notion of the great reversal of history. The new Babylon, which Pastor Wally's going to preach on next weekend, will bear the judgment of God in the place where previously the old Babylon had been, in effect, the conqueror of God's people. And so it's helpful for us to remember that the name stands for more of an event than a specific geographic or geopolitical location. The name Armageddon 
is this notion of like the last stand, the last battle, the last place of resistance of all of the forces that are anti-God and anti-Christ in our lives and in the world before finally the coming of the new creation. And what we're going to see that's hilarious in, well, I don't know if it's hilarious, but it certainly challenges my little idea of the horse and all against the armies is we're going to read in Revelation 19 that the battle of Armageddon actually never gets fought. The kings gather, the forces of evil assemble, but the battle actually is never fought. The resistance simply ends by Jesus Christ showing up on the scene, and it's not even a contest. And this is the main point that John's driving at in his text, that ultimately, God will not permit unholy, distorted behavior and thinking to go on forever and ever. Once these seven bowls get poured out, at some point in human history, God will say, it is finished. And it echoes the work on the cross. And so the end of this text in Revelation begins to describe for us, and this is our pivot point this morning that will carry forward into the next number of weekends, this time or this day or this period where God will dispense final justice. And that's why Jesus breaks in and begins speaking. And if you have a Bible that has red letters in it, you see that this is where Jesus says, listen, the thing I want you to remember in this is that I will come, I will come, I will come, and I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. So blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready. They're not going to have to walk around naked and ashamed. And this is actually the same closing words that Jesus issued in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples are running around there asking, Jesus, can you give us a sign, a sign of your coming? How do we know all of these things is near? Will there be tanks and missiles amassing in the Middle East? Is Jerusalem going to fall? Is this going to happen? Is it? And Jesus says, oh, oh, you're curious about a sign. Oh, a sign. Well, the sign will be that I show up. That's the only sign you're going to get. The rest of it, the rest of it's just rumors. It's birth pains, Matthew says. Rumors of wars, floods, earthquakes, humans, natural disasters, increasing, decreasing. That's just the baby coming. The way you know when a baby arrives is that the baby arrives. And Jesus says it's going to be the same way. That stuff's been going on for centuries. It's going to continue until the day of final judgment. The only warning sign you're going to get is that there are no more warnings. So watch and be ready. Keep yourself in a state of readiness. When you sin, come back again and say, God, I need your forgiveness and cleansing. That's the whole point that John's driving at here in Revelation. And one of the great things that I find that reading Revelation through these lenses is doing in my soul and my life is it keeps bringing me back to the main question. And that is, am I living like a person who is ready for Jesus to return to the earth? Because he's a just judge. And one day he is going to set up his courtroom and one day he will come to judge the living and the dead and he will call all of history to order and he will come to examine the status of our relationships with him, with others and creation. And so the only question that we need to ask is, are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we living in such a way that the king of the universe would find evidence in our lives of things that point to right relationship with him? 
And this is the good news of the book of Revelation. That's why it's not scary and freaky. The whole of the book is simply saying to us again and again in so many pictures, words, and language, He's coming again one day. And on that day, even things that in our lifetime and in our world and in human history have not been set right to our satisfaction will be set right to His satisfaction. Not only will the perpetuators of injustice receive what they deserve, but God will also give to those who are victimized and those who have experienced unjustly, those who are in relationship with Him, what they most desire, full restoration, full healing. One day, all things will be made right. And so until that day, our role is to pray, just like the martyrs praying, God, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come to this earth. May your justice, may your will be done. And today it's not going to come in full measure, but God, how do you want me to participate with what you're doing so that it can come even in a little bit of a stronger way today? How can it come in my relationships with each other? How can it come in my family and in my classroom a little bit more in my life? How can repentance come more quickly to areas of my sin? God, how can your good and pleasing and perfect will be done more in our city this day, this season, than it was yesterday? Jared and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in songs of reflection that also invite us to places of repentance and declaration on our prayer team. And today that's Pastor Wally and Sylvia, myself and Pastor Mike. We're going to be available at the back and sides to pray with you. And if there's an area of your life that you just say, you know what, I want to see God's kingdom come. I want to see it be done more in this area of my life, more of the fullness of God. Let's join in prayer together. And if uh, there's an area for you in your life that you just say, I want to perceive uh, more of God's holiness. I want to repent in this area of my life. You can just take time while we sing to do that and ask God to ready your heart for the things he has for you. So let's pray together. God, we want to be people who are ready. We want to be in places of readiness. We want to agree and have our lives in agreement more and more with the way that you have designed and set up our world and our relationships. And so we just first come in confession and repentance that even looking through this last week, looking through areas of our own lives, my own life, there are so many places where that is not true. And so God, gift me with the eyes of repentance to see and to act in deeper congruity with who you are and how you want me to live. And Father, in your world, we want to also see your kingdom come and your will be done. Give us eyes to see where you are calling us to be people who represent you well in every aspect. And so we say by our words and by our actions, Father, we desire to follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And invite you as you're ready, you can stand and let's worship together. Prayer teams are available at the sides in the back.